This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. An anthology about the bad, the short-lived, and the forgotten shows and events in television history. This is It Was a Thing on TV. Before I change my mind, I give you Super Train. Episode 431, submission number 842, Doctor Who, The Curse of Fatal Death. Doctor Who, The Curse of Fatal Death, aired as part of Comic Relief's Red Nose Day charity appeal on the 12th of March, 1999, for four episodes, totaling 23 minutes. Wait, 23 minutes total or 23 minutes per installment? 23 minutes total. That's a real short quarter of a crock block. Four is a quarter of 16. That's the number of episodes of, oh, you know all this. I'm not going to go through all of it. But 23 minutes, okay. Unless you've been living under a rock for the last 20 years, you know what Doctor Who is, but you probably don't know what Red Nose Day is. Well, didn't NBC do this in the U.S.? Oh, they did and still do. Just not with as much success as overseas. Basically, the catch-all slogan for Red Nose Day is... Do something funny for money. So you can probably guess where they're going with this as far as Doctor Who is concerned. They've commissioned, and they of course mean the BBC, commissioned Stephen Moffat to write a Doctor Who story that could be a straight Doctor Who story, but funny. Not a straight parody per se, but a Doctor Who story that's funny. And let's remember, Stephen Moffat at the time is the guy who made Coupling. Which we did gloss over when we covered the American version a couple years ago. He was doing Coupling with his wife, Sue Virtue, who would go on to produce this thing. As far as Doctor Who lore is concerned, I don't know if it's considered canon or not, but there are elements of this that would appear on other works in the Hooniverse. For example, a female 13th Doctor. Just not the one you're thinking of. Oh, okay. But we'll get to that. In Doctor Who magazine issue 510, Stephen Moffat discussed how the intent of the special was to make a regular episode of Doctor Who, which happens to also be funny rather than just a blatant spoof, meaning that extreme steps were taken to have it fit with the then-existing canon. For example, the Doctor is explicitly said to be in his ninth incarnation, which will make him a successor to Paul McGann's previously seen Eighth Doctor. He also went on to add that while it's since been disregarded, it was seen as a legitimate continuation of the show at the time. Because if you remember, the Ninth Doctor in canon is, of course, Destro from the G.I. Joe movies, Chris Eccleston. 
But who would they get to play the Doctor in this incredibly short series? Only one person that came to mind in 1999. Somebody who just had a movie two years prior. I'm talking about Mr. Bean. I'm talking about Bowen Atkinson. React. React. Oh, Mr. Bean, how can you go wrong with that? And the thing of it is, he pretty much embodied the role. He committed himself to the bit. He basically played Doctor Who with that classic Doctor Who pathos, which is basically a combination of childlike wonder, adult snark, and technical know-how. He was basically playing the Doctor as your favorite professor in college. And playing his companion, Emma, who is this young girl who looks like she is straight out of a 1960s go-go club, Julia Sawala, who you would remember as Saffron, Adina's daughter on Absolutely Fabulous. She was also the voice of Regina in Chicken Run. Oh, Chicken Run. I love Chicken Run. And also... There's the Netflix sequel series that's on now of Chicken Run. So we have the Doctor, we have a companion, and in its special status amongst charity productions, it was twice featured on the cover of Doctor Who magazine, which we already talked about. It is the only parodic story to be covered by Doctor Who magazine archives, and it serves as a production bridge, if not a narrative bridge, according to Truth by Consensus Wikipedia, between the 1963 and the 2005 versions of the program. Although you could argue that it serves more as a companion to the movie. Because if you remember, the movie was about, I want to say, three years before the special. And the special itself used the spinning TARDIS graphic from the movie. Definitely a bit of a bridge there. And most notable amongst the many connections between the old and the new versions is the fact that it showcases the first televised Doctor Who script by Stephen Moffat, who would go on to, of course, be one of the main writers of the new series, the executive producer from 2010 to 2017, spanning the Matt Smith and Peter Capaldi eras. The first post-production work of The Mill, which is the informal name for Technicolor Creative Studios UK Limited. The only time a woman produced an episode of the program between Verity Lambert and Susie Liggett, who would both be executive producers at one time or another. And the final performance of the longest-serving Dalek voice artist, Roy Skelton. So a lot of a bridge between the old and the new. We have the Doctor and his companion. But there's so much more than that. We already talked about Daleks. What we did not talk about was the Master, who appears in this visage as... Sir Jonathan Price, who is known... God, what isn't he known for? He has two Tonys, two Olivier Awards, a knighthood. He's done it all, this he man. He is. 
he played the president of the United States in G.I. Joe, The Rise of Cobra. Oh, that's fantastic. He played the president. Who, who turned out to be Zartan, as revealed in the sequel, G.I. Joe, Retaliation. Oh, no. <laughs> He's a bad man. Rowan Atkinson, within the course of the narrative, would regenerate into Richard E. Grant, who made his film debut as Withnell in Withnell and I, and was in Can You Ever Forgive Me? And he was classic Loki in Loki season one. He was one of the many Loki variants along with Kid Loki and our favorite alligator slash crocodile Loki. I wasn't sure if he was an alligator or a crocodile. I want to think he's a crocodile, but whatever. In this special, Richard E. Grant is billed as the quite handsome doctor. <laughs> Richard E. Grant would regenerate into Jim Broadbent, who is billed as the shy doctor. And among Jim Broadbent's many roles, he has BAFTAs, Golden Globes, a nomination for a Primetime Emmy. He played Horace Slughorn in the Harry Potter series. Diggory Kirk in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And he was Samuel Gruber in the Paddington series. Oh, the Paddington series. Everybody loves the Paddington series. Got me turned on to Orange Marmalade. Mike, would you like to have Orange Marmalade with Paddington Bear? doesn't love orange marmalade it's delicious jim broadbent would regenerate into <laughs> i can't say this was a straight face jim broadbent would regenerate into hugh grant <laughs> who is billed as the handsome doctor and let's be honest we all know about hugh grant and we all know about a certain thing he did like almost 30 years ago he went downtown, if you know what I mean. Good night, everybody. <laughs> he plays the same role in every movie. Uh, uh, I'm so terribly sorry for being so incredibly handsome. I am so sorry. You know, funny enough, you know what I just bought at Target today? What did you just buy at Target today? I'm afraid <laughs> to ask, but I ahead. just bought the Blu-ray of the Dungeons & Dragons movie with Chris Oh, Pons. that was awesome. And he's in that movie. You're talking about the one with Chris Pine in it, right? Yes. And Hugh I loved that movie. Yes. But not only that, guys, but to keep it current, Hugh Grant is in the new Wonka movie with Timothy Chalamet. And you know what he's playing? I know what he's playing. Mike, you want to take a guess? Someone who's nice and someone who's sexy? No, that's Timothy Chalamet. He's playing a nice and sexy. Well, but the thing is, Timothy Chalamet is playing is in Wonka. That's the no. He plays Wonka, a nice and sexy Willy Wonka. This is the thing that got everybody all shook. Okay, Mike, take the guess. Take a guess. That's who he's playing. And and this is in Wonka. Yes. And this is uh, you said Hugh Grant. Yes. Don't say he's playing the assistant Snodgrass or whatever his name is. No, no, no even, even better. No, okay. I, like I said, everybody got all shook about this. Don't say he's playing 
the grandfather to Charlie Bucket. No, 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 the other way. Think small, Mike. Think small. He's not playing an Oompa Loompa. Yes! He's playing an Oompa Loompa. And it got the internet all shook. And I'm going to be honest, the CGI on Hugh Grant as the little Oompa Loompa is hilarious. It's terrible! That's what I mean. It's hilariously terrible. Here's this classically trained British thespian. What is he playing? A motion capture little person. Hey, still better than Marlon Wayne's in Little Man. Is it really? Yes. We're not done yet. Oh, we're not done yet? Because Hugh Grant would regenerate, remember, I teased this earlier, into Joanna Lumley. Oh, that's fantastic. Patsy from Absolutely Fabulous. How terrific is that? The doctor regenerated from Hugh Grant to Joanna Lumley. That's amazing. Talking about New Avengers, talking about the Wolf of Wall Street. But but yeah, let's talk about Absolutely Fabulous a little bit more because I'm looking at her and Julia Sawala. Remember, Joanna Lumley and Jennifer Saunders play a pair of perpetually drunk best friends. And Julia Sawala is uh, Jennifer Saunders' constantly put-upon daughter. If it weren't for the fact that they were actors, and I would know that they were actors, I'd be like, oh god, this is so awkward. But even more awkward than the casting is the story, which I have here thanks to the fine folks at the TARDIS Wiki at Fandom. Strap yourself in. We're going on a ride through time and space. Part one. The Master pursues the Doctor in his TARDIS, maniacally bellowing that the Doctor's certain death awaits him on Zastan Four. The Doctor, from his own TARDIS, replies that the Master really ought to learn to turn off his speaker before he blabs his entire plan, and that he wants to meet him on the planet Tursurus to give him an important piece of news. The Doctor and his assistant, Emma, land in the empty castle Tursurus, he explains that the Tercerans were a kindly, peace-loving race, but shunned and abhorred due to their communicating solely through precisely modulated gastrointestinal emissions. They f- talked by farting. Oh. And they destroyed themselves after they discovered fire. Think about that. The Master pins them to a wall with energy pulses, and having arrived a century earlier to bribe the castle's architect, prepares to subject them to the Spikes of Doom. Instead, they find themselves relaxing in the Sofa of Reasonable Comfort. The Doctor having anticipated this and bribing the architect first. However, the Master then declares that he anticipated this anticipation and bribed the Architect even earlier and drops a giant block on their heads. The Doctor and Emma emerge from a door in the hollow block with the Doctor saying he arrived even earlier. Emma interrupts to prompt the Doctor to announce what he has come to say. Emma and the Doctor 
are in love. Aww. And the Doctor plans to retire from traveling through time and space, having saved every planet in the universe a minimum of 27 times, and settle down in domestic bliss. Now, this was before, or after, I guess? The timeline's all screwy, but, you know, this was before the Doctor and River Song decided to, you know, boo up. Or, I guess it was after. Time and space be crazy, y'all. Horrified and nauseated by this prospect, the Master announces that he will go back in time, buy the architect an expensive dinner, and persuade him to place a lever next to where he is standing and a trapdoor where the Doctor and Emma are standing. He prepares to plunge them into the vast and disgusting sewers of Terceris, warning them to prepare themselves for 500 miles of fear and feces. Ew. Which leads us to part two. When the master pulls said lever, the trapdoor opens under his own feet, the doctor having already bought the architect an expensive dinner. As they go to leave, the front doors burst open and the master appears, significantly aged, having spent 312 years climbing through the sewers, locating his TARDIS and traveling back in time to the current day. Accompanying him are the Daleks, the only creatures not repulsed by the master's smell because Daleks have no noses. Oh, that's right. They don't. It's just metal. It's just metal, but, you know, inside the metal, it's just this gigantic blob with an eye in it. The Master boasts that his body has been augmented by Dalek technology. He now has, in place of his right hand, a plunger. Of course, we wouldn't know what the plungers actually do until that one episode in Season 2 when... The guy who was working for Torchwood got his head plunged. But we just found out in the most recent Doctor Who Children in Need scene that the reason the Daleks have a plunger is because the Doctor like ran in on the creation of the Daleks and broke something and he had to find something and was like, oh, here you go. Emma quickly figures out that he doesn't know what the plunger can do. The Daleks prepare to exterminate them, but the Master decides he will kill them with his bare hands. He charges forward, but the Doctor steps aside, and the Master plunges straight through the trapdoor again. He comes in again, another 312 years older. The Daleks pursue the Doctor and Emma through the numerous and very similar-looking corridors, but one Dalek accidentally bumps into the Master, causing him to fall through the trap door yet again. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> An extremely old master then walks into view, complaining about having spent a grand total of 936 years in a sewer. The Doctor and Emma finds what they believe to be the way out of the castle, but in fact it turns out to be a room full of Daleks. Which leads us to part three. The Daleks have captured the Doctor and Emma rather than exterminating them, shocker, and tied them to chairs, much to Emma's confusion. They always want to exterminate us, but they always change their mind at the last second. They've also restored the Master to his original proper age and augmented him further to have Dalek sensor bumps on his chest. Oh. 
The master insists that these are etheric beam locators and they're very firm, but the doctor mocks him over the sensor's resemblance to breasts. The master announces that in exchange he has given the Daleks the secret to controlling a zectronic energy beam which will give them power over the entire universe in only minutes. The master charges up the beam, but the Dalek Supreme whispers to the doctor that they plan to exterminate the master after the beam is active rather than share the power with him. The doctor realizes that both he and the master speak fluid Terserin, so he farts a warning to him. Oh my god. <laughs> the master speaks the message out loud as he receives it, though without the Dalek's hearing, but Emma inadvertently ruins the plan by breaking wind, causing the master to suddenly start shouting gibberish, which does alert the Daleks to what's going on. This gives the Daleks the excuse they need to get rid of the master, but they accidentally end up shooting both the doctor and the zectronic generator instead. The overloading generator is beyond the master's capabilities to repair, only the doctor can fix it, but the doctor lays dying, farting, to Emma, I love you, before seemingly dying. Emma is distraught as his apparent death, but the master reassures her that the doctor is in his ninth body and has many more lives as he begins to regenerate. Which leads us to the final part. The result of the doctor's regeneration is a quite handsome, if a bit vain, persona. Not Colin Baker. He confirms that Emma is still very much interested in marrying him and prepares to leave with her, but the Daleks beg the Doctor to help deactivate the Zectronic Beam Generator in exchange for his life, to which he agrees as a perfect way to finish his... career. However, an explosion causes him to regenerate again, this time into a shy persona, very nervous around girls, and the Master with his oddly placed etheric beam locators and Emma is visibly disheartened by this new version, finding him nowhere near as attractive as his two predecessors. He goes to try again to deactivate the beam with another burst of energy, causing him to regenerate again. The new doctor, very handsome and charming indeed, is rather embarrassed. I'm rather embarrassed. I'm so good looking, and I'm so British, and I'm so embarrassed, and I'm really sorry is rather embarrassed that he wasted three bodies in under a minute simply because he forgot to unplug the generator first. The crisis appears to be over, and Emma is quite looking forward to getting to know this new doctor when a residual burst of pure zectronic energy knocks him down. With the zectronic energy preventing his regeneration, the doctor appears to die permanently. The Master and the Daleks resolve to permanently forswear evil to honor the Doctor's sacrifice. Yet to everyone's amazement, the Doctor's features begin to change and he regenerates, this time into a very buxom woman. Emma calls the wedding off due to the Doctor being, in a very literal sense, no longer the man she fell in love with. The new doctor is quite excited to discover that her sonic screwdriver has three. <laughs> what? <laughs> he can't even say it. What? What does the sonic screwdriver have? The <laughs> I'm a professional. A professional. This is like your winds of whoopee right here. The new doctor is quite excited to discover that her sonic screwdriver has three settings. 
but then she and the master lock eyes. The two express their mutual attraction and go off together, the master laughing maniacally again. Oh, yeah, baby! And that's the story! <laughs> so the doctor and the master are now in love. Some would argue that they've been in love for quite a while now. Oh, yeah. As far as Doctor Who stories, it is a Doctor Who story played straight. And it also happens to be an accidentally funny episode. And by the way, you can watch it for yourself. It's on YouTube on uh, Comic Relief's official YouTube channel. There are a whole lot of callbacks to Doctor Who adventures and also Doctor Who being insanely cheap to produce. One of the reasons the Doctor is planning retirement from saving the known universe on a weekly basis, he's tired of endlessly running around those rock quarries. And when Emma is running with the Doctor to try and escape the Master, the Doctor and Emma spend... A long time running through the exact same corridor over and over while she says, these corridors all look the same. A few mythology callbacks, uh, according to TV tropes. The sound and the visual effects used for regeneration most closely resemble those used by the first Doctor's regeneration into the second. And when the twelfth Doctor dies, when Hugh Grant dies and suddenly regenerates... Roger Lim's incidental music for the fifth Doctor's regeneration in the Caves of Androzani plays. And later on, as Joanna Lumley and the Master walk away, the regeneration music from Logopolis is played, which I can't even begin to unpack. When it appears as though the Doctor's death won't lead into regeneration, Emma says that the Doctor was never cruel and never cowardly. Oh, that carries over. I believe Stephen Moffat also wrote The Day of the Doctor, which that was a key line in that story. The special itself was released on VHS, but per the extent of our research, it was never released on DVD. It's no longer available to buy. It can be found on YouTube, as we said before. The BBC has not ruled out a future DVD release, but won't even consider it until all the canon episodes get DVDs first. And as we said a couple weeks ago, a good chunk of 97 of them are still missing. Even that may take a while. And as originally broadcast, the credits were followed immediately by a short message from Rowan Atkinson, still in character as the Ninth Doctor, appealing directly to the audience to ring the comic relief phone line. This clip, along with some minutes worth of curse-relevant links shown throughout the night, were not included in the home video release, nor have they been released to YouTube. You can still watch that clip, if you know where to look. But basically, it's the doctor saying, when I want to save the world, I use a phone box, but you can do it from home. 0345-460-460. The producers actually wanted the episode scored with music taken from Dudley Simpson's soundtrack from the fourth Doctor era, like everything else, if you saw the opening of that, because the opening was basically the Doctor Who open with Tom Baker's bass cut out. Simpson did not keep any of the original tapes. 
They looked to use parts of Jeffrey Bergen's scores from Terror of the Zygons and the Seeds of Doom. And while Bergen actually did have the tapes, they were unusable. They were deteriorated in storage, and there wasn't time to get them digitally remastered. And the draft script, as it was written, featured potential suggestions of who could have played the other Doctors. With Colin Firth instead of Richard E. Grant, Mel Smith from Princess Bride and National Lampoon's European Vacation instead of Jim Broadbent, a lost geeky doctor played by Lee Evans, and Robson Green of some sort of crime drama that I can't remember instead of Hugh Grant. But if you ask me, I think they made the right call. So there you have it. Comic Relief gave us Red Nose Day, still gives us Red Nose Day, all over the world even. But in 1999, for the BBC, it gave us this incredibly hilarious thing on TV. And that'll do it for not just this episode, but also for our 60th anniversary celebration of Doctor Who. You know, barring uh, an instant reaction from either Greg or myself or both of us for the Star Beast, which as of this recording, is right now on Disney+. Plus. You can shut off this podcast and then go over to Disney+, Plus and watch it. Yes. Okay, that's terrific. Mike, do we have the Mash Demon Howard Squares Hour report for this week? But of course we do. It's time for This weekend Match Game. Hollywood Square, our history. All right, we're up to week five of Match Game Hollywood Square's hour. And among your panelists this week, airing the last week of November of 1983 and the first couple of days of December of 1983, we have Audrey Landers. Nothing for Audrey Landers, okay. Fred Travelina, Marky Post, Arsenio Hall, Sean Stevens, Jim Stahl, Blake Clark, one of our favorites, going back to the water boy, and first appearance, not her last, hold me back, Greg, Nidra Vols. The opinion of that boo is that of Greg and Greg only, that does not represent the management of it was a thing on TV, a.k.a. me. So now in week five, this is cosmetic, but uh, they use new index cards. It's not really a big thing. I know Greg really wants to talk about one thing. There's a contestant this week by the name of Maury Gersh. He would be on the syndicated card sharks about three years later. And he was best known for an answer regarding Who's Madonna, I believe, is a question about Madonna. He's like, I don't know who Madonna is. And I think he even got into some biblical explanation about, you know, who he thought Madonna was, not the the singer, mind you. And in 1986, Madonna would have been like everything, the biggest star on earth, probably next to me, Michael Jackson. We also do have our first undefeated champion on the series. Bill Carroll, he left after five games with $26,825. And also this week, in terms of gameplay, 
we had maybe the biggest shellacking in Match Game Hollywood Square's history, if not the biggest, definitely the second biggest, where the champion won, not joking, like $1,300 to $25, or $1,400 to $25. So that means a contestant literally got one question right. Though in terms of Match Game Hollywood Square's our contestant, she was the Nathaniel Hackett of Match Game Hollywood well, that's this week at Match Game Hollywood Squares Hour History. Back to Chico to close the episode. Wow! Uh, I, 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 oh, oh, this is, oh, my, this is terribly awkward, but I, 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 can't, I, I wanted to tell you something, but I, 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 oh, I seem to be so charmingly befuddled. Ah, oh, that Hugh Grant is so handsome. Oh, is that how it is? Come here, you home-wrecking bastard! <laughs> Don't do it, Dad, he's bigger than you! After these messages, we'll be right back. Yeah! Got a picture tells a story. Capture the color of Christmas this year on fresh Kodak film. I got it! I got it! Kodak wishes you some merry, merry pictures. would like to thank you for taking us into your homes. We wish you all a happy holiday. To Grandmother's House We Go. We'll continue in a moment. It's a very Merry Christmas on TTIF. First, an angel makes a nerd out of Laura. Get lost, Laura. I'm wearing you down, baby. Family matters. I'm wearing you down. Then Cody gets the bird. I thought he'd have one of them thermometer dealies and pop up when it's done. Step by step. And will all Pooh's wishes come true? We are going to find a way to bring Christmas to everyone. Winnie the Pooh and Christmas too, followed by the making of the Muppet Christmas Carol and Beauty and the Beast on a very merry tea. Friday, a holiday tradition for 21 years. I've killed it. It's time once again for America's favorite Charlie Brown adventure. It's an Emmy award-winning special. It's a Charlie Brown Christmas. Then he's back, the original cool guy. And this time he's going to melt your heart. So chill out with Frosty the Snowman. Share the holiday spirit Friday on CBS. There's more for your Christmas at Sears. Save $20 on this Craftsman timing light. Now just $29.99. This special purchase one-and-a-half-ton floor jack is only $29.99. This exercise bike with speedometer, just $99.99. And this cassette car stereo with coaxial speakers is $99.99. So wrap up a beautiful Christmas. Episode 432. Submission 1616, the Frank Reynolds Centennial. Now, just to be clear here, 
we're not talking about the Frank Reynolds from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. This Frank Reynolds never went to Risky Rat Pizza, as far as I know. So he didn't do it, do it, do it, do whatever you want. No. No, we're talking about the Frank Reynolds, the journalist. Now, today, November 29th, 2023, when this is being released on our Podbean feed, is the 100th anniversary of Frank Reynolds' birth. Now, a lot of you people are probably way too young to remember Frank Reynolds. Now, I myself was born in 1984, a year after he passed away. Now, Chico, you were born in 1980. Right. So you were three when he passed away. Now, Mike, you were eight when he passed away, correct? That is correct. Do you have any, like, memory of him on World News tonight? No, I can't say that I have a memory of Frank Reynolds, even though my family has been a World News Tonight family for decades, up until and even after Peter Jennings passed away. So, let's get into the story of Frank Reynolds. Frank was born in East Chicago, Indiana. And today I learned that there's a town in Indiana called East Chicago. You didn't know that? No. It's like right near Gary. It's literally like just over the border. Okay. So Frank, after attending Wabash College in Crawfordsville, Indiana, served in the United States Army during World War II, where he was a staff sergeant E-6 in the infantry and was awarded a Purple Heart. That's fantastic! Now, after the war, Frank would begin his broadcasting career in Indiana on WWCA AM in Gary and also worked at WJOB AM in Hammond, Indiana. Frank ended up as a television anchor in Chicago on WBKB in 1949, which became WBBM-TV a few years later, and was a CBS-owned and operated station. He would then serve as the Chicago correspondent at CBS, and in 1963, he moved to the second WBKB, which was an ABC-owned and operated station. Now, you might know this station today, guys, as WLS-TV Channel 7. WLS. And only two years later, Frank would join ABC News as a correspondent. One of Frank's earliest interviews that is on YouTube is from 1965 with Sergeant Shriver. It's actually on the official YouTube channel of the Peace Corps. So I'm going to play it for you right now. I'm Frank Reynolds, ABC News, Washington. On college campuses around the country these days, some blunt questions are being asked about the Peace Corps. Here to answer those questions is our Sergeant Shriver, director of the Peace Corps. Mr. Shriver, don't young Americans have enough to do here at home without going overseas? Well, some of them think that they do, but I think they're wrong. There's really only uh, one problem facing the world today, and that's the problem of poverty and disease and ignorance and hunger whether it's in the United States or overseas. 
and there's a great similarity between these problems within the United States and overseas. And consequently, whether a person's working for civil rights or to combat disease and hunger here at home or abroad is irrelevant. The big thing is to be doing it someplace. Most people aren't doing anything anywhere. So you see no conflict then between the recruitment program for the Peace Corps and other uh, agencies trying to do something about social conditions at home? None whatsoever. I would say that at a minimum, 50% of the people who graduate from college today don't do anything either abroad or at home along these lines. They go off into business, they get married, they go on to professional school, graduate school, and so on. But they don't get involved in the pressing problems, the uh, problems which are causing revolutions in Panama or Santa Domingo, Dominican Republic, or out in uh, Vietnam or elsewhere. They don't get involved in those issues either at home or abroad. Why should they? Because these are the problems that are going to control the future that they're going to live in, the world in which they're going to live. A lot of people think that they can be uh, successful and prosperous on an island of security all of their own, that they're going to be able to accumulate a lot of money or something like that and be happy and contented at home. I think they're dead wrong. And they might have been able to do that 50 or 100 years ago, but the world is so small now that it's no longer going to be possible for a few people to be very, very wealthy, uh, whereas 90% uh, of the people are poor. And in fact, I think the riots in Watts in Los Angeles, the Watts District of Los Angeles last summer, did serve one useful purpose. They suddenly shocked lots of Americans into the realization that there are serious problems here at home that need attention right now. That just because a suburb, for example, looks nice, because there's a little bit of grass in front of the house and somebody's got a water sprinkler twisting around Saturday afternoon. That does not mean that everything's fine in, in Watts. You know, a lot of Americans are sort of beguiled by a palm tree. If there's a palm tree waving, everything's got to be great. It isn't true. It isn't true in Florida or Los Angeles, and it isn't true in tropical Africa or Latin America. Do you have a Peace Corps recruitment problem right now? We don't have a problem, except insofar as there's a tremendous need for Peace Corps volunteers. When I say that, there's a demand uh, from overseas, from foreign countries, for twice as many volunteers as we're able to send. Now, I believe in keeping the quality of the volunteers as high as possible. So I would uh, quickly point out they probably never will be able to meet the demand. But the opportunities for Peace Corps volunteers are tremendous, and the opportunities for our country are tremendous, because very rarely has any nation been given the chances that the United States is being given through the Peace Corps. So by 1968, Frank became the co-anchor of the ABC Evening Newscast with Howard K. Smith. Now, guys, you gotta note, NBC had Brinkley and Huntley, and CBS had Walter Cronkite. ABC was, like, struggling in the news department at, like, 7 o'clock back then. In fact, back in, like, around, like, 66 or 67, they had this kid from Canada by the age of 25, and he did not do too well in the evening news. So they had to shuffle him out to be a foreign correspondent for ABC News, but... You'll find out more about that man a bit later. So around 1968, by the time Frank Reynolds is becoming 
the co-anchor with Howard K. Smith on the ABC Evening News. We've got this really funky promo covering all the news in 1968 that ABC is going to cover. a year. It's our job to see that you don't miss it. ABC News. Nineteen sixty-eight. It's going to be quite a year. That's the understatement of the century, guy. And also in 1968, Frank was a part of a panel show on ABC called Issues and Answers, which also features a very young Sam Donaldson on this show. It's funny, whenever I picture Sam Donaldson, he's always like 50 years old in my mind. From Los Angeles, California, and New York City, the American Broadcasting Company brings you an hour-long special edition of the award-winning interview program, Issues and Answers. The candidates in the important California primary next Tuesday, June 6th, will be interviewed by ABC News Capitol Hill correspondent Sam Donaldson, ABC News correspondent Bill Matney, and ABC News special correspondent Frank Reynolds. I want to welcome uh, each of you and all of you to this special edition of uh, Issues and Answers. We have tried to be, uh, to be fair and equal in uh, the distribution of time here. I'm not sure that we've succeeded completely, but uh, it's been interesting and we have been very pleased to have you, all of you, this crowd on ABC's Issues and Answers today. For Sam Donaldson and Bill Matney, this is Frank Reynolds in Los Angeles. Thank you. Can't help but notice that Sam Donaldson still has that very square jawline, though. And maybe it's just me, but that was like the emptiest set ever. You had the sign, you had the seven people in the chairs, you had a rug right there, and that's it. Well, TV wasn't as busy that time. Well, but the thing is, it looks like you're filming in somebody's basement, essentially, not necessarily maybe a basement, but just an empty area. You could have like, you know, fake bookshelves in the background or it, you could make it busier, but that looked, for lack of a better phrase, like a public access production. Well, to be fair, Mike, there was no such thing as public access in 1968, so they would have no idea. I get that. Maybe this was the inspiration for every public access show ever. Well, it was also ABC, and let's remember that they were third place at this point. They were essentially the new kid on the block compared to NBC and CBS. So maybe their budget 
just wasn't in it. They just had no money for anything. Maybe they just didn't have the money for anything quasi-extravagant, if you will. They were just giving all the money to Bewitched. That money had to go to pay Elizabeth Montgomery's contract somehow. And you know, if you had Elizabeth Montgomery, some of it had to go to Paul Lynn, too. He was Uncle Arthur. Okay, but I would be remiss that they talk in that clip about the California primary on June 6th. And it's 1968, and you obviously know what happens on June 6th, 1968, the day of the Cal, well, the night of the California primary. And that was, of course, the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. So, yes. Tragic day. Very tragic. So, I should mention that at the time we're recording this, it's November 24th, 2023, two days after the 60th anniversary of the death of John F. Kennedy. Now, for his commentary on the ABC Evening News on November 22nd, 1968, the fifth anniversary of JFK's death, Frank recorded this commentary on the fifth anniversary and kind of rings true today in 2023, even though it's 55 years apart. So I'll just play it right here. Five years ago today, the pain, the hurt, the outrage all flood back. And that's the way it ought to be. Time may smooth the rough edges of sorrow, but it does nothing to diminish the depth of the loss this country sustained five years ago. There is certainly no need to worry that the memory of this young man will fade, even though there are children alive now who know him only as Bobby's brother, who also was shot. That's the way one five-year-old described him to me last June. The steady line of patient people moving through the hills of Arlington, however, every day, rain or shine, Leave no doubt that John Kennedy's eternal flame burns as brightly now as ever and will, hopefully, for generations to come. Five years does make possible an unemotional appraisal of his presidency, and it must be said there are those who find it unimpressive in certain respects. His thousand days produced no great tide of landmark legislation. The Congress was not receptive to all his ideas. But the effectiveness of a presidency, as indeed of a life, cannot be measured solely in charts and graphs of things done and not done. And I sometimes think that President Kennedy's greatest gift to his country was a sense of concern, of involvement. He was, above all, the unremitting, untiring enemy of apathy. This same intolerance of indolence, this unwillingness to settle for the status quo, was certainly the hallmark of Robert Kennedy's life, especially after November of 1963. As always, we honor them both best by emulating their best. And that was not to be found in their style or grace or wit, but in their concern and compassion. Mrs. Frank Reynolds. Just one of those moments in time that is no less true 55 years from when it was uttered than it was when it was uttered the first time. Later on in 1968, Frank would be at the anchor desk for the Apollo 8 mission 
from when they orbited the Earth. Now, I'm going to play some clips of Frank from the various missions from the Apollo program from an ABC News videotape back in the late 1980s regarding the history of the Apollo program. So, right now, I'm going to start by playing some clips from the Apollo 8 mission on ABC. Apollo 8 is now more than 120,000 nautical miles out into space, and the mission has been underway for 31 hours, 9 minutes, and 35 seconds. And we're standing by here, Frank. I think the first TV pictures are beginning to come through from Apollo well, 8. we should get them very shortly, and that, right. of course, is the reason we're on right now right. in order to bring these pictures. Here they are. There goes the first TV from Apollo 8, 123,000 miles out in space. That's Frank Borman in the center of our picture right there, Frank. This transmission is coming to you approximately halfway between the moon and the Earth. We've been uh, 31 hours, about 20 minutes into flight. We have about uh, less than 40 hours left to go to the moon. You can see Bill's got his toothbrush here. He's been brushing his teeth regularly to demonstrate how things float around zero G. Looks like a place for the astros when he tries to catch us. <laughs> I certainly wish we could uh, show you the Earth. It's a beautiful, beautiful view with uh, predominantly blue background and uh, just huge covers of uh, white clouds. And tonight, the crew of Apollo 8 presents a Christmas Eve program from the heavens. We are now approaching uh, lunar sunrise, and uh, for all the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send to you. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the Earth, and the Earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called he seas. And God saw that it was good. And from the crew of Apollo 8, we close with good night, good luck, a Merry Christmas, and God bless all of you. All of you on the good earth. God bless them. Unbelievable. Unbelievable.
That was the Copernicus crater and some of what? Three good men. And next here are some clips of Frank anchoring the coverage of Apollo 10. But they are now down to uh, 50,000 feet above the surface of the moon and we can tell just by uh, by listening to them that uh, they are seeing these uh, truly spectacular and fantastic sights and they seem quite excited as they as they move along closer to the surface of the moon than man ever has been before. About a minute away now from uh, the Heracintheon, uh, the lowest altitude at which they will be relative to the moon. Right. Right. After passing lunar landing site one, as uh, Snoopy has just done, that's John Young in the command module. After passing lunar landing site one, they're coming up on lunar landing site two. Houston, if you read to have Snoopy tweak up the high gain, now we're not reading him at all, over. They're coming up on lunar landing site two, the prime landing site for America's first in a manned lunar landing in July. Snoopy, Houston wants you to tweak up the high gain. They're not reading you. If all goes well on the rest of this critical Apollo 10 mission, uh, then Apollo 11 will be launched on July 16th. It's due to land on the moon at, under present planning at 2.22 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time on the afternoon of July 20th, a great event in human history. And since you couldn't see it from the audio clips, I should note that what Frank and Jules Bergman were watching in the studio at ABC were these videotape clips from the ship of Apollo 10 with the caption, as seen on videotape by the crew of Apollo 10. And I gotta say, for something being videotaped in 1969 on the surface of the moon, showing the surface of the moon, that is a pretty damn good technological feat for 1969, if I must say so myself. Before we get into the coverage of Apollo 11, I want to play this clip from the coverage of Apollo 11 with Frank talking about the life of Neil Armstrong as it all led to this very important historical moment in July of 1969. Neil Armstrong actually could fly a plane and was licensed to fly a plane before the state of Ohio legally authorized him to drive a car on his 16th birthday, I believe it was, when he got his uh, pilot's license. And, of course, uh, the most important flight of his career will take place this Sunday when he lands that lunar module on the moon and becomes the first man to walk on the moon. All the astronauts are experienced men, experienced at their line of work, you might say. None more so, really, than Neil Armstrong. He can fly just about anything that has wings. And his flight record is a long jumble of numbers and letters like the X-15, the F-104, the B-47, the paraglider, the F-5D, and many others. When he was a boy in Wapakoneta, Ohio, he and a friend repaired a wrecked plane, and Neil actually learned to fly it. You can see they're very proud of him there. During those late 30s and early 40s, he developed a love of flying that he has never lost. Armstrong left the small plane class in 1949, however, when after a couple of years at school at Purdue, he became a pilot in the United States Navy. He flew 78 combat missions during the Korean War. And after the war, Armstrong went back to school to receive his degree from Purdue. And in 1955, he became a test pilot for NASA's high-speed flight station at Edwards Air Force Base in California. 
And there he continued to add to his flight record that now shows he's had more than 4,000 hours flying time. In September of 1962, Neil Armstrong became an astronaut. He served as backup command pilot for Gemini 5 and then command pilot for the Gemini 8 mission. He was the first man to successfully dock two vehicles in space, but more importantly, he showed his coolness under fire. A malfunction caused the dock vehicles to pitch about wildly. Armstrong separated the Agena from the Gemini spacecraft, but the spinning uh, continued for, some, for him and for Dave Scott. Just seconds away from disaster, Armstrong found the cause of the spinning and stabilized the Gemini spacecraft. It was not the first nor the last demonstration by Neil Armstrong of his magnificent control of himself and whatever flying machine he happens to be piloting. And now he is in command of man's most historic flight to date. He is ready. And so here it is, Frank and Jules Bergman on July 20th, 1969, as it happened with the historic event as Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landed on the moon. And I should note that the video, if you watch it, because all the links from all the clips are going to be in the description in the capsule on our Podbean page. If you watch it, the simulations they do for the moon landing for ABC while it's going on is very technically impressive for the time. And it's almost... 50 years later, over 50 years later. And I think the effects and the simulations they did for this by EBC is very impressive, even today in 2023, considering no CGI, none of the fancy graphics or equipment we have today for trying to show the simulation people. It looks exactly like you would think or imagine how this was happening live at the time. So, here we go with the coverage of the moon landing with Frank. Good day from ABC Space Headquarters in New York. It is July 20th, 1969, and man is about to land on the moon. Eagle will touch down approximately four hours and 17 minutes from now, if the flight plan as it is now established uh, goes forward as scheduled. With me is our science editor, Jules Bergman, and we will be here from now on for what uh, will be uh, truly a historic time in the life of our country and in the existence of mankind. This is Apollo Control. That uh, separation maneuver was performed as scheduled, uh, giving the... Uh command module a delta V of about 2.5 feet per second, uh, which should give a separation to the two vehicles of about uh, 1,100 feet at uh, the beginning of the descent orbit insertion maneuver. You got right down US-1, Mike. At 30 feet down, two and a half, picking up some dust. 30 feet, two and a half down. Straight shadow, four forward, four forward, drift into the right a little, down and a half, 30 seconds forward, just, contact light, okay, engine stop, APA at a descent, 
Both control, both auto, decent engine command, override off. Engine arm off. 413 is in. We copy you down, Eagle. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger, Twink. Tranquility, we copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. I'm going to step off the limb now. So by 1970, Frank was replaced from the anchor desk at the ABC Evening News for Harry Reisner. And after the demotion, Frank returned to the field as correspondent for ABC. So I think I mentioned in a previous episode that Harry Reisner was teamed at one point with Barbara Walters on the Evening News at ABC right after she got hired from NBC when she was on the Today Show. And it never worked between Harry Reasoner and Barbara Walters. So at one point, Harry Reasoner just decided, I'm just going to go back to CBS. So there was like this period for a while where Barbara Walters was kind of lost in the shuffle until she went to 2020. So right now, I'm going to play the commentary that Frank did for his final episode on the ABC Evening News before Harry Reasoner took over back in the late 1970. This is my last program as anchorman for the ABC Evening News. On Monday, Harry Reisner, whom I respect personally and professionally, takes over, and I wish him well. The standard script on an occasion such as this calls for some breastfeeding about how wonderful it's all been and how much is owed to all the wonderful people who have made it possible. Well, I have too much respect for you to try to pass off such a large dose of hypocrisy all by itself. The truth is, it has been wonderful at times. And of course, there are many people who have made it possible and to whom I shall always be grateful. But I'm not going to suggest that I'm completely happy about what has happened to me, for it is also the truth that I don't like it one bit and see no reason to pretend that I do. Like most prisoners, I was put here against my will and like most prisoners, I would prefer to pick my own time to leave. However, such matters are decided elsewhere, and I have no quarrel with the judgment that it is time for a change. I have given this assignment my best, and I'm sure my worst. So maybe we're even. I suppose I ought to say I hope I have not offended anyone in the last two and a half years. But that's not really the truth either, because there are a few people I did very much want to bother, and I hope I have. Mistakes have been made here, and for each one I am sorry. But as inadequate as most of us in this trade know we are, we also know that you have the right to expect at least honesty on this side of the box. And I leave now satisfied that I have given you that. For what is important is not that this program has meant almost everything to me, but that it may have meant something to you. I presume or dare to hope that it has. So there are no regrets here. I've had some grand times and some great fights, and I look forward to more of the same. 
one last privilege is mine. I can now be among the first to wish you a Merry Christmas and a happy and, pray God, a peaceful New Year. This is Frank Reynolds. Thank you, and good night. But in comes Frank again, and in 1978, Rune Arledge, the visionary producer at ABC, who ran the sports division, was now in the news division, and he had this really hot concept. World News Tonight. Now, the way it worked was the initial idea of World News Tonight was they would have three different anchors anchoring from three different parts of the world. So you'd have Frank as your main anchor in Washington, D.C. You had Max Robinson in Chicago. And then in London, you had that 25-year-old kid who I told you got bumped off the ABC Evening News reporting from London in Peter Jennings. Two leading Russian dissidents go on trial amid worldwide protests. Secretary of State Vance says the trials will aggravate relations with Moscow, but the salt talks must continue. From ABC, this is World News Tonight with Max Robinson in Chicago, Peter Jennings in London, Barbara Walters' special reports, and tonight a comment from Howard K. Smith, and from our Washington desk, Frank Reynolds. Good evening, and welcome to the first broadcast of the World News Tonight. Speaking for all the men and women of ABC News, I promise you an accurate, responsible, and meaningful report on events at home and abroad. We are aware of our responsibility to you, and we intend to meet it. Our major story tonight concerns brave men who dare to speak their minds. Their fate is now more than ever before bound up with the future of relations between the United States and the Soviet Union. Here is Peter Jennings in London. Frank, the men you're referring to went on trial in the Soviet Union today in cases almost certain to further strain Soviet-American relations. Alexander Ginsburg and Anatoly Sharansky are two of the Soviet Union's most prominent dissidents. Ginsburg is charged with anti-Soviet behavior. Sharansky is charged much more seriously with treason. Both men pleaded innocent. The trials are perhaps the most important political ones since the end of the Stalin era. Western reporting is severely limited. First, because no Western newsman is allowed to attend, and in our case, because a film report our correspondent delivered to Moscow airport never arrived here in the West. So this was kind of like a revolutionary concept. It's like you have three anchors reporting from three different locations. Yeah, I mean, it was unheard of. I mean, you know, Huntley and Brinkley, one would be in Los Angeles, one would be in New York, and one would be in Washington. Yeah, that was basically mind-blowing when they came out with that idea to conquer, uh, well, not to conquer, but to match wits with Walter Cronkite by himself. But three anchors... That's kind of like revolutionary and kind of high tech when you think about it with the way like satellite trucks and everything were working by like 1978, especially with Peter Jennings out in London doing his part of the news there. Because by that time, like Peter was one of the main foreign correspondents over at ABC. 
So prior to the most recent solar eclipse that we had back in 2017, Frank was at the news desk for the previous solar eclipse we had in 1979. So here's some coverage of that. Well, that's it, the last solar eclipse to be seen on this continent in this century. And as I said, not until August 21st, 2017, will another eclipse be visible from North America. That's 38 years from now. May the shadow of the moon fall on a world at peace. And ABC News, of course, will bring you a complete report on that next eclipse 38 years from now. I want to thank everybody involved in this magnificent undertaking. It's been just great. We've had a lot of fun. This is Frank Reynolds in New York, and we'll have a complete report on the world news tonight. Well, Frank was kind of optimistic that in 2017 we'd be a world at peace. Now, Chica, we are watching a video right now. Can you describe what's in this video? All right, this is the ABC News Washington Bureau, obviously, and it is very much an old-school newsroom. You have Frank Reynolds just working at a typewriter, obviously hasn't had a keyboarding class, but he's working on his own material, taking drags off his cigarettes while he's doing so. And he's just hacking, hacking away at that keyboard. Because obviously it's like 1980, and there's no such thing as Mavis Beacon teaches typing. Fun fact, there's no such thing as Mavis Beacon. I did not know this, but apparently Mavis Beacon is not real. Slightly faker than Betty Crocker. But I love this old set right here of the ABC Washington set. You have, like, all these clocks right here, these TVs right on the side. And there's yeah. only four because, you know, back in that day, cable was unheard of. You only had, like, four different feeds, ABC, CBS, NBC, and whatever was going on on the West Coast. Because this is Washington right now. Yes. Well, didn't CNN start out in eighty? Yes, it did. But I don't think everyone had CNN back then. Right? Cable was still something that you had to pay up the gut for. Mike, did you have, like, CNN back in your area? We didn't get cable till 85. Okay. Same. One of the big major news stories that Frank anchored during his coverage on World News Tonight was the eruption of Mount St. Helens back in in May of more steam and ash spouted from the mountain today but there was nothing like the massive eruption of two days ago however officials have now drastically revised their estimate of the death toll from Sunday's explosion six persons are known dead and late today authorities said they believe nearly 100 are missing the great cloud of ash from the volcano is now drifting across the Midwest and East but not in sufficient density to cause serious problems However, in parts of the Northwest, the impact of Mount St. Helens has been devastating. We have a series of reports tonight. First, here is Tom Shell. Today, we got the first close-up look at Mount St. Helens since the massive eruption Sunday morning. This is the area that blew out. It is the slope that had been bulging for several days. The force of the blast flattened everything in its path. These logs were a forest until 8.30 a.m. Sunday. The landscape is almost colorless because of the heavy coating of volcanic ash. This is the bottom of the Tootle River, the water cut off by a 200-foot-high mud flow that acts as a natural dam. Scientists say the water will soon come over the dam, probably causing major flooding downstream. 
If the dam bursts, it could cause flooding at the towns of Kelso and Longview, Washington, 40 miles away, where 50,000 people live. Silt and mud that got into the Toodle River from the eruption has been carried into the Columbia River, making it too shallow for shipping. At least a dozen freighters are stranded in the ports of Vancouver, Washington, and Portland, Oregon. Mount St. Helens is continuing to send up clouds of ash that are drifting to the east, dropping a heavy layer of ash over a large area. Tom Shell, ABC News, Mount St. Helens, Washington. A horrible-looking sight. That's the way President Carter described the area around Mount St. Helens today after an hour-long helicopter tour of the region. Mr. Carter said the devastation was worse than he expected to see and predicted it will take years to clean up the mess caused by last Sunday's eruption of the volcano. So the next clip I'm going to play is a promo from KTVK TV3 News out in Phoenix featuring Frank. Now, Chico, you lived in Arizona, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Uh, yeah, but I lived in the uh, Tucson market area down near Sierra Vista. Phoenix is a couple hours north, but right now, KTVK is an independent station right now. Arizona's family, they build it. But uh, the ABC affiliate would be a K... I don't remember what the calls are, but it's Channel 15 right now. KNXV! Okay, KNXV. Who owns that? Oh, Scripps. Of course Scripps would own that. This is Frank Reynolds in Washington. Now more than ever, ABC's World News Tonight links you instantly to correspondents around the nation and the world covering events as they happen. Together with Peter Jennings in London and Max Robinson in Chicago, we give you a new perspective on the news. Watch ABC's World News tonight at 5.30, followed at 6 by Arizona's most involved news team. Together we bring you the important news of the day, here on 3. I kind of like those probos. They have, like, the news anchor there telling you all about the station. It kind of makes it feel like wherever you are in the country, it kind of makes you feel like, oh, we're important. Maybe it's just me, but Frank Reynolds there, he looked a little like Anderson Cooper. Get rid of Anderson Cooper's glasses. I see a lot of Frank Reynolds there. That's a very good point, Mike. I did not think about that yet. But yeah, there's a little uh, Anderson in there. And where did Anderson first get his start in television? ABC News. That's how he got the mole job. But the biggest moment in Frank's broadcasting career would occur on the day of March 30th, 1981, during live news coverage of the assassination attempt on President Ronald Reagan. Now, early reports received by the newsroom at ABC indicated that his press secretary for Reagan, James Brady, and others had been shot, but that Reagan was uninjured. However, Frank became upset when a report arrived at ABC indicating that Reagan had indeed been struck and at one point was heard shouting at an individual off screen to speak up as more information arrived. Now, I have the um, clip because, Chico, you remember how Ben at the Oddity Archive had that episode about breaking news? I do. Uh, This was just one of the big breaking assassination stories in that block yes so there's going to be a bunch of various clips here now the whole thing that ben found is no longer on youtube so i'm just going to post the snippets that remain because this is the best i could find from that incident that's on 
Ben's montage here. So this is at the 2343 mark of Ben's breaking news videos. So let me play it right here. Videotape of an incident that took place less than 15 minutes ago at the Washington Hilton Hotel when shots were fired at President Reagan. Here you see the president coming out now. You just have to watch. I don't know if we can hear this or not. Affairs. Lynn Knopfsicker has told reporters at the hospital that the president was not wounded. Okay, so now we're at the clip here, and in Ben's notification here, in parentheses, says this occurred sometime between 5.10 and 5.30 p.m., hours after the shooting. He was wounded. My God. He was, uh, the president was hit. He is in stable condition. All this information, the, the president was hit. He was hit in the left chest, according to this, but he is in stable condition. And the typed information I have is that he is okay. Speak up. The president was hit. That was really a different time. The way Frank reacted to what he was reading, you don't see that nowadays. The way that Frank took control, telling the person on the side, speak up. He was like the quarterback of the newsroom, if you will. Yes. That was an exercise in accountability in real time. And I should note that it was a little personal for Frank because James Brady was a close friend of Frank and he was incorrectly reported by all the networks as having been dead in the incident. Now, I could not find the clip, but on Truth by Consensus Wikipedia, when he learned the information about the report about Brady was incorrect, Reynolds appeared noticeably upset, looking around at the staffers in the background, and angrily burst out, let's get it nailed down. Somebody, let's find out. Let's get the word here. Let's get it straight so we can we can report this accurately. And one thing I should mention, the report that James Brady was, in fact, was still alive, you're not going to believe who reported this it was frank's son dean reynolds the same dean reynolds who is currently on news nation and also in ben's video i think this is like a rare case this is like an inception sort of situation we have a special report inside of world news tonight and this is october 1981 so i believe so I believe this is around the time Anwar Sadat, the president of Egypt, was assassinated. Yes. In fact, this is actually the three living presidents at the time about to go to pay their respects on behalf of America to President Sadat. Yeah, so it would be the three living ex-presidents at the time, which would have been Nixon, Ford, and Carter going along with Reagan. So it would be four of the living presidents going to Egypt. So I'm going to play it right now. Stephen Gere, ABC News, New York. Thank you, Steve. As we mentioned earlier, three former presidents, Mr. Carter, Mr. Ford, and Mr. Nixon, are at the White House to meet with President Reagan before going on to Cairo to attend the funeral of President Sadat. And we're going to pause now to allow the rest of our stations to join us for a report on the ceremonies at the White House. This is a special report from ABC News. 
for many of the stations just joining us now. I'm Frank Reynolds in Washington, and President Reagan has greeted former President Carter. There they are, walking to the helicopter to go to Andrews Air Force Base, three former presidents who will soon then be on their way to Cairo to pay this country's homage to Anwar el-Sadat. Well, we're going to end this special report now, and we'll resume our broadcast of World News tonight in a moment. I kind of miss the days of, like, when they would have, like, the slide for the breaking news there with, like, no music whatsoever. Nowadays, everything has to have a gigantic computer graphic. And in CBS's case, a countdown. So in early 1983, Frank was diagnosed with multiple myeloma. So, Chico, do you know anything about that? That's a cancer of the blood. Frank was diagnosed with meloma while he was being treated for acute hepatitis. Back in January, Frank had injured his upper left femur in the Florida surf while on vacation and fell on it, slipping on some ice in mid-February during a snowstorm. X-rays showed a hairline fracture, and Frank underwent surgery on March 17th and was diagnosed with hepatitis a month later. His last broadcast was on April 20th, 1983, and despite promises of his return by substitute anchorman on World News Tonight, Frank never returned. He dies from the hepatitis-induced liver failure on July 20th of 1983 at the age of 59 at Sibley Memorial Hospital. And that night's Nightline was dedicated to the life and times of Frank Reynolds. Ours is a relatively young industry. When Frank Reynolds began as one of its early practitioners, radio was where the stars assembled. Television was more of a technological curiosity. But during Frank's 35-year career, the impact of television has exploded to an amazing degree. A top-flight professional, Frank Reynolds cared about the truth, about fairness, and about meeting his own high standards. Nightline correspondent Jeff Greenfield traces Frank Reynolds' career as a television journalist. Good evening, and welcome to the first broadcast of the World News Tonight. Speaking for all the men and women of ABC News, I promise you an accurate, responsible, and meaningful report on events at home and abroad. We are aware of our responsibility to you, and we intend to meet it. Responsibility. In a career spanning 35 years, from a small Indiana radio station to network TV anchor, the essence of Frank Reynolds was responsibility. He took his work seriously in an era when TV anchors were supposed to be comfortable, casual, reassuring. And Reynolds remained a serious newsman in an era that saw change of the most fundamental, far-reaching sort come to the business of television news. Frank Reynolds was born 59 years ago in East Chicago, Indiana. After college and infantry service in World War II, he began work at a Hammond, Indiana radio station, then moved to Chicago in 1949, where he became a pioneer in early TV journalism. His first love was sportscasting. Frank Reynolds was one of the best sports broadcasters I've ever heard. On a little radio station in Hammond, Indiana, he could cover any kind of a story, an emotional story, a story of poor, innocent people. Well, it's beginning to rain. This little baby, how old is the baby? A year, three months old. She might get sick out here. He showed what he felt and what was in his heart. And I think perhaps, while some might think that was a fault, I think it was his greatest asset. In 1965, Reynolds joined ABC News. 
It was a time when the network news operation was something of a stepchild. At that time, ABC News was about fourth in a three-network race, if you can be that low. Now, we, uh, we had a very small organization working on um, a very slim budget. By 1968, Reynolds was co-anchoring the evening news with Howard K. Smith. He was also offering sharp commentary, which did not sit well in some high circles. Don't give anybody a chance to say the old cup fighter, go for the jugular Nixon, is finally showing himself once more. Just take it easy, and above all, keep your cool. Well, that's difficult, especially when his natural instinct is to smash the enemy with a club or go after him with a meat axe. Had this slander been made by one political candidate about another, it would have been dismissed by most commentators as a partisan attack. But this attack emanated from the privileged sanctuary of a network studio and therefore had the apparent dignity of an objective statement. In December 1970, Reynolds was replaced as evening news anchor. He bade farewell to his audience with his customary candor. But I'm not going to suggest that I'm completely happy about what has happened to me. For it is also the truth that I don't like it one bit and see no reason to pretend that I do. Like most prisoners, I was put here against my will. And like most prisoners, I would prefer to pick my own time to leave. However, such matters are decided elsewhere, and I have no quarrel with the judgment that it is time for a change. But after a brief period on the fringes, Reynolds returned to the center at a time when television news was being shaken to its roots. Hi, Governor. I don't want to take away from your great moment here. Hi, Nancy. This is Reagan. TV had become the center ring of American politics, where candidates for president were expected to debate each other face to face. Mr. President, when you came into office, you spoke very eloquently. The communication satellite and other technologies had collapsed national boundaries, enabling historic adversaries to meet face to face. So that after tomorrow, your ambassadors, for example, your two ambassadors in Washington can meet and talk? Uh, why not? Well, because they never have before. Uh, so it has never happened, yes. But I said today, we are ready. There should always be a beginning. The confines of the news studio had become as limitless as the globe. An anchor could report the news from the coal fields of West Virginia. Here in the coal fields, it is clear that something more important than three months' pay has been lost by these people. They have lost faith in their government and in the leaders of their union. Or the capitals of the world. Good evening from Versailles. This is Frank Reynolds in Jerusalem. This is Frank Reynolds in Saigon. This is Frank Reynolds with the president in Punta del Este. This is Frank Reynolds in Leningrad. This is Frank Reynolds among friends on San Rafael Street in Havana. And sometimes even the world wasn't the limit. Columbia, the space shuttle, ready to go. The first rays of the sun breaking now across the eastern United States. Most of the country still in darkness, but here at the Kennedy Space Center on Cape Canaveral, it is the dawn of a new day and a new era in the history of flight. Frank was the, was the person that enabled us at ABC News to develop what at first we called the floating anchor, the sub-anchor, that is the anchor who moved out from behind the desk. Anchors now, as a matter of course, are out there, whether it's uh, Sadat meeting Begin or it's uh, uh, the, uh, the day uh, Jaruzelski ends martial law in Poland or, or uh, a summit uh, somewhere. 
anchors are on the scene. And Frank Reynolds was very much one of the innovators of that kind of work. And with the impact of instant news came dilemmas. What happens when there is no time for editorial judgment? When apparently sound information, the reported death of Press Secretary Jim Brady during a 1981 assassination attempt on President Reagan, turns out to be wrong. It's true, but we did have reports from the hospital earlier and from the White House that, uh, that he had passed away. We know that he was in very critical condition. Let's get it nailed down, somebody. Let's <clears throat> find out. I don't apologize for, uh, for my display of uh, anger. It was anger, and it was anger directed more at myself than at anybody else, certainly, because I was, I, I really regretted that I had not insisted on further corroboration. He was not someone you could push around when, uh, when he felt that he was wrong or that the situation was not appropriate or and somehow uh, out of step. He was the first to express it as well, and that's a valuable asset, I think, in uh, journalism. And Frank encompassed all of those things. He was at the core a thoroughly professional reporter. Frank also had a real emotional connection with the news. He felt it. And sometimes he let that feeling show. And that's not always a bad idea. Frank has always been a get-up fighter. Uh, get knocked down, get up. <clears throat> and I guess I really expected him to get up. And this time, when he didn't get up, to say that I was shocked uh, would be an understatement. Frank was a genuine journalist. He didn't want to get in the way of the news. He wanted to report it to people, and it never occurred to him to think what he might look like or how he was lit or whether his mic was made him sound good or bad. It's one of the reasons he was such a pure journalist and one of the reasons he was such an inspiration to all of us here at ABC News. But perhaps the most impressive tribute was paid to Frank Reynolds during his lifetime by his critics. He always took the news so seriously, they said. He acted as if the weight of the world was on his shoulders, they said. Well, maybe Frank Reynolds knew what some others in this medium have forgotten, or never knew at all, that matters of life and death, war and peace, wealth and poverty are indeed serious, and so is the power and the responsibility carried by this medium. Television is the way we learn about the world now, and Frank Reynolds helped us learn about that world fairly, accurately, and responsibly. This is Jeff Greenfield for Nightline in New York. And also in the Nightline episode, after the Jeff Greenfield obituary near the end of the episode, there's this comment that Harry Reasoner gives while being interviewed by Ted Koppel that I thought was so good, I thought I'd include it here in this episode. And I think this rings very, very true. Harry, let me pick up the cudgel just a little bit. When you referred to yourself and the other fine names in the business to whom you referred, you're really talking about the best and the brightest. What I was talking about is the tendency that seems to happen in our industry, and I mean throughout the industry, to go for other qualities than those that I think are, are represented by, by Frank Reynolds. That's why I think it's so important to point to those aspects of him. Well, there's absolutely no argument with pointing to those aspects of Frank Reynolds or any good journalist. but at, uh, what my point is, with no derogation of Frank, I admire it tremendously. My point is that I don't think that the standards of network correspondence have descended that much. You know, you're what, 20 years younger than I am, Ted? 25 years younger? No, about 20, I guess. 20? No, not even that much. No, I don't. I, and Tom Brokaw is 20 years younger. Charles Corral is 12 years younger. 
Uh, almost everybody is younger than I am these days. Frank Reynolds was. I don't see that the, uh, the dedication has deteriorated. I don't know what's happening at local news. Uh, it was Charles Corral made a speech saying that there's an awful lot of emphasis on hairspray, which you can't argue with, Ted. But I think that was because <laughs> Charles, Charles is bald and has been since he was 28. But uh, I don't think we are descending. And I, what, my point is I don't think Frank would like to be pictured as a, the last of a vanishing breed or one of the last. Frank's funeral was held on July 24th at St. Matthew's Cathedral in Washington. And some of the people that spoke at his funeral were his various ABC News colleagues, Peter Jennings, Ted Koppel, and Jeff Greenfield, and also attending the funeral, and this was very classy, President Ronald Reagan. Well, it was actually reported that the Reynoldses and the Reagans were actually good friends. Yes, they had known each other quite a bit over the years. Frank was laid to rest at Arlington National Cemetery, and I'm sharing with you right now the, uh, the tombstone right here that reads, Frank Reynolds, Staff Sergeant, United States Army, November 29th, 1923 to July 20th, 1983, a man who cared, beloved husband and father, dedicated journalist. So even though it's been like over 40 years since his passing, I mean... He gave, like, life to the world news format, which is now gone on strong. He carried over with Peter Jennings for the next 20-plus years until his death and is now being held today by David Muir at ABC News. The show's been around 45 years, and it's outlasted, Frank, by 40 years now. And that's kind of like a big legacy. He was one of the first three at World News Tonight, and it's still going strong today. It may not be as good today as it was 20, 30, 40 years ago, but it is still going strong. You got to give it that. Yes. And would you believe that Frank Reynolds has a lasting legacy? Aside from Dean Reynolds over at News Nation, obviously, but his is the voice. If you remember Paul Hardcastle's 19... His is the voice narrating that sort of documentary text that you hear. That makes sense now that you say that. I never made that connection. Yeah, in fact, according to Truth by Consensus Wikipedia, the footage included was from ABC, some of the footage in that documentary. But ABC demanded that it be replaced, so Paul Hardcastle replaced it with stock footage. But... Frank Reynolds' voice was kept on that recording. So that's kind of, like, really cool considering, like, he's in, like, a song, which is pretty much probably what most people, like, today would know him for in a weird way. They probably don't know him as an anchor, but they probably know him as, the, like, the narrator in that song. Well, nothing else I can say, but, I mean, 100 years and... Well, he hasn't been with us in 40 years, but Frank Reynolds, in his 59 years with us on this earth, left a very lasting legacy 
in television news. And he was certainly a thing on TV. A thing on TV who cared. Yes. And I think that's pretty much what's missing in today's television news. I don't know what to say, but I mean, in case you have been living under a rock the last 40 years, the state of television news in this country has kind of gone down way, way low. It's all about the ad revenue now. It's not about the story. Yeah, and I think that's kind of what's missing today in television news. It's No, I don't think it's about the story. I think it's about the message. Yes. Because if the story was told the same by everybody, that's one thing. But the thing is, the way it's being presented by the different networks, they're manipulating it for their own purposes. So, yeah, it's not about the story. It's about the conveyance of the story. Well, we hope you appreciated this tribute to Frank. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. But remember, you can always go to our website over at itwasthingontv.com where you can listen to the 431 episodes that precede this episode. We've got all sorts of great bonuses there, including midisodes, live shows, extended versions of previous episodes. we got everything. And remember, we are on all social media, including Instagram, Threads, and Mastodon over It Was A Thing On TV, except for Facebook, where we are at It Was A Thing On TV podcast. And just remember, if you want to follow us on Mastodon, you have to search for us at it was a thing on TV at tvwatch.party. And remember to subscribe to this podcast wherever fine podcasts can be streamed, either at Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, Audible, etc. And don't forget we are on YouTube where you can like and subscribe to our channel. And don't forget to hit the notification bell on YouTube to be informed of all future uploads on the channel. And I promise you I'm going to keep up with the YouTube uploads, people. I've been behind on that lately. I apologize. Just everything with Thanksgiving and work and everything. I've kind of been behind on that, but I'll get everything up to date. Don't worry. And all those uploads include what's coming up on the podcast next time. Well, guys, I think next week we got, I think these are going to be two great episodes coming up next week. Now, first episode, I want to mention, we did this because somebody, not us, but somebody we know has a birthday coming up. The birthday person requested an episode, and I'm like, I can make it happen. And it's one of those things, one of those shows, where you take a really good thing and you make a sequel out of it? Wait, they made a sequel to a television show? They made a sequel to a television show. It would have to be the most popular television show at the time. Manimal? <laughs> yes, Manimal. Oh, that's fantastic. No, wait. That sequel on Nightman sucked. Manimal 2 Electric Boogaloo. But the second episode, now, Mike, I'm not one for hyperbole, but this may be, in my opinion, 
the most anticipated episode of this podcast ever. I think your anticipation has only come to the surface in the last, say, month to six weeks. I think if we look back even to, let's say, beginning of October, late September, you would have been like, this is a blip on our radar. But over the last, again, month and a half, two months, I don't know if you've developed an appreciation for it. I don't know if you maybe have found so much stuff you want to talk about in this series, but it's suddenly risen to the like the top of uh, your must-do list, and we're doing it next week. I got to say, not since Second Chance 1987. Have I been looking forward to an episode as big as this? Think about that. That's three and a half years since we did that episode. I really can't believe you're so excited to do this uh, show. I'd actually say I'm surprised you're this giddy about it, but the name Giddy has taken a whole new connotation the last 24 hours. See Wander Franco. Oh, God, why? Now, I thought you were going to make the connection there. Oh, I didn't realize you were talking about. No, that's why I didn't use the word giddy, because, well, that. (laughs) Here we have 45 minutes of gravitas, only to end with that. Oh. But you'll find out more about those subjects in our next episode of It Was the Thing on TV. Now to close, I'm going to have Ted Koppel deliver some final thoughts about our subject today. And we'll see you next week. I'd like to offer a final personal note. Ours is not a business that promotes privacy, nor is it an industry that normally favors substance over style. And as the late Alan Sherman once wrote, Television makes prisoners of us all by paying us more than we're worth. So how was it that a painfully shy, and he was that, intensely private journalist of great substance like Frank Reynolds, a man who eschewed the fast lane and the high life, how was it that he was such a success in our business? No answers tonight, but those of us charged with trying to maintain the high standards set by Frank Reynolds may learn something as we ponder the question. We'll miss him, and so will you. That's our report for now on World News Tonight. This is Frank Reynolds for ABC News. Good night from Washington.